Hello, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. My guest today is an international best-selling author whose debut novel, Girl in Translation, won numerous awards and was featured in USA Today, The New York Times, and Vogue. Jean Kwok's work has been published in 18 countries and taught in universities, colleges, and high schools across the world. Her latest novel, Searching for Sylvie Lee, which Booklist is called Poignant and Propulsive, was released on June 4th. Welcome, Jean, and thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your show. Now, I noticed that there were some interesting facts that I pulled up when I was researching your background, and one is that you know and speak three different languages. Um, And I was curious which language you mainly write in, and then maybe do you translate into the other languages, or do you work with translators? Well, that's a really fantastic question. You know, I do um, speak a bunch of languages, but I'm only really good in one, you know, <laughs> and, that, and that language is English. I mean, the rest, you know, I, I am fluent in, it's, it's interesting because I'm an immigrant, and so my first language was Chinese, and um, I was born in Hong Kong, and we moved to the U.S. when I was five, so I didn't speak a word of English when we arrived in the U.S., and it was really quite difficult and traumatic, actually, not to speak the language. So I learned English as a second language. And um, But the thing is, I think, like many immigrants, it's a kind of one of those unexpected facts. Because I grew up in New York and I was educated in English, and my entire life was mainly run in English, except for at home with my family, English became, you know, really the language that I was the most fluent in because I really went to school in it. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, later on, I married a Dutch guy. I moved to Holland. And so, of course, I am fluent in Dutch as well. And I did study it, but I'm not as fluent as in English. I am still working on my first language. Once I get English nailed down, then I'll move on. To try and learn another one. It always amazes well, I me think when. You're doing pretty well. Oh, thank you. Whenever I meet people who you know have learned, I tried learning other languages back in high school, and I just could not do it. And people told me it's because I tried studying them too late. Like I should have started as a kid. I don't know if that's true or not, but I just know I never could pick up anything. I think that you know it is true that. Language learning is best when you're young. But, you know, it's also a question of necessity. You know, if you are in a foreign country, you have to learn. And it's a lot harder to learn if, you know, it's just more kind of a hobby. Now, when, yeah, so when you moved to the United States from Hong Kong, um, that was pretty traumatic, you mentioned. And when I was looking over your bio on your website, it seems like it was, that's an understatement almost. It was, it was quite a turn of events. Tell, tell us a little bit about kind of what happened when you moved here, sort of the change in, in transition in your life. Right. Well, I, I think we went through um, a really traumatic change because we 
lost, uh, even though we had been a fairly well-to-do family back in China, by the time, you know, my, my parents and my brothers and sisters had escaped communist China and moved to Hong Kong. And while they were stuck in Hong Kong, I was born. And then they made that final leap to the United States, which had always been their dream. And by the time they got to the U.S., they had really lost all of our money. And so we were, we had, we only had debt. I mean, we had to pay back lawyers' fees and visa fees and all of these things. And we, we wound up, you know, living in this incredibly run-down apartment in Brooklyn. And it wasn't, you know, just like, oh, it wasn't really luxurious. No, it, there was no central heating system. So we lived in an unheated apartment in New York City, um, you know, for years. And it was overrun with roaches and with rats and vermin. And, and, and you know, strangely enough, we were the only inhabited apartments in that building because everybody else knew that this kind of thing was illegal, but because oh, we were immigrants. Yeah, we didn't know. We thought this was, you know, we paid rent and everything. We thought this was on the up and up, and this was how people had to live. Um, and to make things worse, my whole family also started working in a clothing factory in Chinatown. And even though I was only five, I went along with them and, you know, helped work after school every day. And you had to learn the language because you didn't know English. That just, I'm sure, made things even more difficult. That's exactly right. And I, you know, I didn't know the culture either. So, I mean, in those days, I I had like never really, I had no idea what New York was. And I had actually never seen a non-Chinese person before. So when I went into, you know, my little elementary school, on the first day, the teacher stood and seated me next to this kid. And I looked at him, I was like, oh my God, this kid is blind. And I thought he was blind because he had blue eyes. And blue huh. eyes, the only Asian people with blue eyes, they're, they're blue because they had cataracts. And the cataracts were so bad that they had blinded that person. So I was like, oh, my God, the kid is blind. And then it turned out, and I looked at his head, and I was like, he's bald, too. You know, he wasn't bald. <laughs> he actually, he had, he had blonde hair. And I did not register blonde hair as hair because I'd never seen it before. So wow. yeah, those yeah. kind of problems I had. <laughs> That's crazy. And your memory is very vivid. Like, when I try to remember back to those days, I'm sort of like, yeah, I was a kid and I ran around outside, and that's about all. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but that's because you didn't go through, like, trauma, you know? Trauma yeah, no, that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> now, I understand that your books have been inspired uh, by real events in your life, some of the different events that you've gone through, difficult times maybe um, in some cases. How, how do you do that? How do you take tragedy or emotional pain and weave it into your fictional stories? I think that is such a great question, and that's one that I think when I figured out that answer for myself, that was when I really became a novelist. And the, the truth, it's true. I mean, I basically write from trauma to trauma, you know? It's like every book is the next trauma I've, I've experienced. And I had a really hard time doing it at first because obviously it was painful and difficult and you feel the need to revisit the material, but you can't really, you know, it, it's too hot to handle. And what I do is I make it less hot. 
I do whatever I need to to make it less hot for myself. So, for example, my new book, which is just out, Searching for Sylvie Lee, is about a sister who disappears. My brother disappeared, and it was really difficult, and, you know, I had to step up and figure out what happened to him. And I knew that if I were to write a book about a brother disappearing, it'd be too hard for me. I, I, yeah. I would get stuck, and I wouldn't be able to fictionalize it. I wouldn't be able to actually make it art. So I, um, I change it enough so that I can handle it. And another trick I tell people is that sometimes you'll be writing and there will be a character in your story that is silencing you. And, you know, it can be, you know, a, a figure, an authoritative figure who's probably stemmed on someone, you know, based upon someone from your real life. And you know what I say? I say, you know, in real life, you can't kill them off. In your fiction, you can. You know, kill them off. <laughs> if there is a person or a character in your book that you actually realize is holding you back from speaking the truth, you know, in whatever format you're willing to tell that truth in the context of your work, get rid of them. Get rid of them. Try telling the story without them and then see what happens. And if you need to, you can reinsert them later. But just take them out so that you are free to speak. I like that. That's great. That's good advice. And I think it is very insightful, too, because people do let um, their inner editor or their inner critic or whatever kind of hold them back very often. And it's interesting that from your, um, from your work, you've noticed that people allow characters to do that in their writing. And uh, I think that's great advice. Kill them off. Get rid of them, you know. Um, when I was, I remember there was one time I was going through a difficult time and I told my friend, I was whining to him about it. It was a travesty. I said, and he said, no, you're a writer. It was material. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. So, so sometimes, yeah, sometimes those difficult times can inspire us. And I think, you know, a lot of people can identify with the universal themes of loss or, you know, questions that uh, you bring up in your stories. And that's probably one of the things that draws people to them. Right. And I I do think that, you know, what I find is people always ask, when do you know when you have a story or have a book? You know, when do you know you have something that, you know, you can, that is actually alive, that's viable? And I always think, you know, for myself, you know, you have, um, your mind is easily seduced. (laughs) At least my mind is. And I'll suddenly be like, I know, I'm going to write a story about identical twins. And oh, it's going to be so brilliant. And then later I'll be like, oh, God, that was the stupidest idea ever. You know, (laughs) that was stupid. And so for me, I know I have something real when I have a gut physical reaction to it. And I, and that that kernel of feeling, whatever that feeling is, is real and genuine inside of me. And if I don't have that feeling, I will not write a good piece. Um, so that feeling is essential to me to power that work. And that, you know, leads into another question about editing, that sometimes people are like, well, how do you know edits? When do you accept them? When do you not? And yeah. I always tell people, you know, yeah, when you edit, I what I always do is I try to be as open as possible because, of course, when people tell me an edit, I just want to kill them. You know, my first <laughs> is like, no, 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 no. Can I tell you again? No. You know, but actually, many times if I sleep on what they 
told me, they may be right. I need to be open to it. I need to try to make my work as good as possible. But on the other hand, I always tell people, when you are editing something and people are telling you to make changes, remember your work has to stay alive. You wrote it for a reason. There is something, there's some spark in that work that is alive for you. And whatever you do, don't kill it. So it's better to have something that is flawed but alive than something that is like perfectly proportioned, but is a kind of Frankenstein corpse, you know, that Mm, nobody's interested in and nobody's going to want to read. Yeah, that's... That's a great point, and you know I think about um, editors that I've worked with over the years, and I think the best ones are those who really have a vision for helping you get your story in print instead of allowing you know their own voice to creep into the edits that they're doing. Um, but it can be a frustrating you know experience <laughs> at times. That's definitely, definitely true. Definitely, yeah. And it's hard to know where to draw the line. You know, it's hard to know when you should listen and when you need to dig in your heels and say, actually, no, I think that's going to be wrong. Um, and it's, you have to be very, very true to yourself, and true and flexible at the same time. Yeah, you know, sometimes I think about it this way. Let's say that you're a painter and you spend a year on a painting. Every brush stroke you've thought about, you know, a a hundred times and you spent hundreds, maybe a thousand hours on this painting and then it gets taken to an art studio or a museum and they hand out paintbrushes to young art students who've studied the art manual and they say, go ahead and touch that up and then they say to the painter, oh, by the way, if you don't like the changes they made, you can just, you can just paint over them and change it back when they're done. I mean, a painter would go, he would go insane. You know, he would say, no, that's the painting. But that's what happens to authors, you know, every day. And it's easy to understand how the process can be really frustrating unless you have an editor that you really trust and and can work with on the same page. Yeah, and to be honest, you know, I have to say that my editors have improved my work. So, you know, when I... Yeah, when I first, um, when I first published, you know, anything at all, I was really shocked by the first edits I got. I was like, oh my God, (laughs) it had never occurred to me how much red ink could go through my story, which I had obviously already rewritten like a hundred times, you know, Uh so I was really shocked. And I went to um, a trusted mentor and she read through it and she said, but Jean, the edits make the book so much, the the story so much better. And Mm. I thought, you know, actually she is right. And not all edits do, but if you have a good editor, I do think that, you know, because the thing is I am dedicated and I care a tremendous amount about my work, but the problem is that I created it. I know my entire world. I know every single piece of information that is told and untold. And what a good editor or a workshop, what a good workshop can do is they can look at that piece with a fresh eye and a different perspective and say, hey, listen, you know, I don't understand why this happened. And you'll be like, oh, yeah, well, obviously, because blah, blah, blah. (laughs) 
did, yeah, did, did you put it on the page? Is it fair to expect a reader to know that? Did you make it clear enough? And sometimes I really haven't. A lot of times I really haven't because I knew it. You know, I knew it and I just assumed that somebody else would know it as well. So it's kind of a great um, balancing tool to have yeah. a good, fresh read. You know, somebody who says, hey, listen, or, you know, I'm not Chinese and they're doing this. And to me, it seems like they're being very harsh. And then you can kind of go in and adjust it so that somebody else from a different perspective can understand it. It sounds like you're very teachable when it comes to that. And and uh, it's that's a definitely, uh, you know, a skill that um, or a trait that that's, you know, in the long run is really going to help your writing, I think. I think a lot of people are not as teachable and, and you know, they're like, um, I don't really want input and I can understand, you know, both techniques or both styles, but I think yours probably ends up improving the story more in the end. Well, and I think, you know, at this point, I've published my third novel. You know, I'm a pro. I've gone from uh-huh. being an amateur to a pro. And I think a part of becoming a pro is being able to take it. You know, you kind of, yeah. you got to have to, you have to be able to roll with the punches. And, you know, that's the way it works. And I, I, I am, I'm experienced enough to know that I am not as perfect as I would like to be. You know, I work really, really hard, but... I also appreciate having a team around me that you know helps me improve. And there are times when I really don't accept it well, and I don't agree, but I try to be as open as I can. Well, it's, obviously it is paying off, and it's a it's a great approach. Now, when you're developing your characters for your stories, what are some of the things you're really trying to keep in mind? Um, or what are some of the ways that you're really trying to get them to um, connect with your readers? Well, that's, you know, that's um, another interesting question because I think about that a lot. And a lot of my, my work will start with a character. You know, we'll start with a character or a couple of characters and a situation. And then, of course, you're building this character. And, oh, God, I have done everything wrong in building characters, so you can imagine. <laughs> I want, yeah, I have. I spent 400 pages writing, you know, my first novel that was then read by my agent at the time. And he said, you know, God, he said, Gene, he said, the father figure, for example, in your book, this is not the one that got published. I had to talk uh-huh. that whole novel. Uh, but he said, the father figure in your book, he's like, he's like six different people in one. You know? <laughs> no, I'm like, no, no, no. You don't understand. He's complex. But you know, actually, he was right. He was six different people in one person. And that's always so difficult. You know, how do you create a character who is not stereotyped, but yeah. complex, you know, and that feels like a real person. And I am, I am still constantly working on that. I mean, what I yeah. do is I often will think of a real person who's kind of like that character. And I will never write a character entirely based on a real person, but I will take some kind of essential feeling about someone. Um, I will start building that character. And then I write, I do write a whole character sheet that doesn't go in the book where um, I will, so the first thing I do is I try to make sure that the character in the function it has 
in the novel or story um, that that character is not playing to stereotype. So, for example, if the character is an ex-girlfriend, you know, I think what are the first things that are, are going to pop into my silly little mind when I think ex-girlfriend? I'm going to think beautiful, annoying, mean, you know, all those things. And then I'm going to make sure that my ex-girlfriend character is not going to be like that. Um, I like so I try to, yeah, I try to be aware of what that stereotype is and to make sure that I am not following the stereotype of whatever it is. Um, and then what I'll do is I actually go through a series of questions and answers about my character. Like I go through a character prompt sheet where I just ask myself, you know, what do they read when no one is looking? What do they think is funny? You know, what is their greatest um, trauma? What is their, you know, I, I just go through a whole cycle psychological analysis of the character. I will sometimes actually go through magazines and stuff and try to find a face that I think is similar to the character I have in my mind. But I try to make the character as real as possible. And a fraction of what I've... And then I write in their voice. Then I have an empty paragraph where they're not in my book. They don't have to fulfill any plot function, but I just have them speak to me. Um, so oh, yeah. I can hear them. I can hear what, they're, what they sound like. And a fraction of that usually enters the novel, but then I usually have a solid character I can use. I think a lot of people um, can benefit from that you know, approach. I think some authors get to know their characters as they write rather than kind of Pre, you know, preloading it and getting to know them beforehand. Um, do you find that as you work on your story, some of those character traits and and characteristics end up changing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, everything changes. Everything yeah. changes. But you can also mess up because stuff is changing. So let me tell you. So I, you know, my new book, Searching for Sylvie Lee, I was writing the book. I had developed, you know, the main arc, the main ideas. It was going really great. And then kind of, I don't know, on the first third of the book or so, I decided to give the main character, Sylvie, a, a fish and, self, a, and, and shellfish allergy, right? So great. Okay, you know, I sure. work it in. She's allergic, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's, it goes through the entire novel. It's going very well. And the novel is sold. We're in edits. You know, we're in final, final edits. And I'm reading through the book like a final time, and I realize, oh, my God, her father works in a fish store. You know, like a feeding oh, no. store. You know, and it's bringing food all the time from the store. So, in other words, he's bringing fish home from the store, and she has this incredible allergy. And I was like, "Oh my god!" And once I realized it, I could fix it. You know, I could. I just needed to justify and explain what happened when he brought the fish home, um, and you know how he was. You know how he was resentful of her for being allergic and not eating uh. the fish. But if I hadn't thought to deal with it, I would have looked so stupid. You know, but that was because that was that's a part of the process, and that's why you need a good editor and a good team to check it over so that you don't miss things like that. Because you are constantly changing and developing as you're writing. I remember hearing John Sanford, who writes crime novels, talk about this one time, but there was a, a gun that he had used in his book, and he was like, oh, I think I need to use a different gun. So he just did a search and replace and just changed the gun throughout the book. But apparently the gun that he changed it to, um, I think, didn't have a safety. 
And so, anyway, the characters kept taking the safety off to fire the gun. And so he heard from all these gun experts, you know, who loved his books and said, I can't believe you made that stupid mistake. You should have known this is like this, like this. But it was one of those things where he just made that, you know, kind of search and replace without, at the end, saying, oh, wait a minute now. You know, I need to read this through maybe one more time and make sure that that little detail is, is, is figured out because readers will notice that, won't they? Oh, they notice everything. Readers are so freaking smart. They see <laughs> everything. They do. And, you know, and what's funny, sometimes, you know, I'm on kind of book club um, chats and things like that and online and Facebook, and, and I will see people comment and say, oh, God, you know, there were so many, like, grammar mistakes in this book and this and that. And, okay, self-published is another story, but with yeah. a traditional big five publisher, you would not believe how many people have gone through looking for grammar mistakes. You know, I think, you know, I go through, of course, a certain number of drafts. I do at least three drafts with my editor. Then copy editors start going through. I think with this new book, I must have had at least three rounds of copy edits. And the entire production department also goes through looking for for problems. And then yeah. yet somehow we'll still miss stuff. But believe me, the readers will catch it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sometimes I've heard you know, I've heard from readers and be like, oh, you should never end a sentence with a preposition or or something like that. And um, I'm like, it's too bad that people were taught that. There really isn't a rule about that. I mean, it it just depends on the voice of the character. Maybe the character ends every other sentence with a preposition. Who knows what the character does. But but sometimes, I, I wonder if sometimes people just have it in their mind to try and locate a mistake that authors have in their books. I don't even know. Right. I totally agree with that. I think, yeah. you know, the, the author has to fit the voice of the character, the voice and the mood, and that does not mean perfect grammar. You know, we are not in grammar school. That's not why we're yeah. reading. Yeah, exactly. Now, you mentioned that you go through the books quite a number of times. Do you tend to outline first? Um, or plot out the book, or do you write more organically, getting to know the story as you move through it? Well, I have tried it both ways, and I am, um, I think I'm an, I I write literary fiction, but I think I'm an Uh unusual literary fiction writer, because the organic way did not work for me, like, at all, (laughs) at all. That was the book that I wound up having to trash, because Uh um, I trashed everything except for 400 pages. It was agonizing to write, and I had to throw everything away except for the first 40 pages, which became the seed of my first novel, Girl in Translation, which was an international New York Times bestseller. So I... um, I really outline before I start. And, you know, I do that with the caveat that I, you know, you know things can change. I am not locked into this outline, but it just gives me somewhere to go. I feel like especially for people who are trying to write a book, you know, a book-length manuscript, it's so complicated. There are so many things. It's You're like a juggler, and there's so many balls you've got to keep up in the air all at the same time. And it's just hard. You know, it's hard to keep control of how fast the story is moving, that your characters are developing organically, then you have the language, you want to write beautifully, you have your theme, 
emotions that you're trying to convey. You know, there's just so much going on and so much that is difficult to do um, simultaneously that it helps me. It helps me to have an outline and to know that, okay, what we want to do is to get from this point to that point to that point. And if I know the ending, for example, at the beginning, I can build to that ending. I can try to create an ending that is going to be surprising to the reader and yet earned, you know, that they're not going right. to be like, oh, my God, this came in out of the blue. I have no idea what this came from. But that, you know, it has been there all along, but somehow they didn't see it. That's interesting, you know. Uh, I know people have different approaches, and a lot of our listeners are always intrigued by if people write organically or if they outline before. But you find that having that roadmap is really keeps you on target for the ending that you have in mind when you start. Right, and I find actually that it frees me because then I am, I think of a, a book as like building a boat, you know, and I want the boat to float when it's done. So I want to make sure that the foundation, you know, the, the basic lines are solid and seaworthy. And so um, I do think about a book in that way that I don't want to write myself into a corner or I don't want the reader to be reading along and be like, oh my God, I'm just bored out of my mind. You know, nothing is happening here. Um, so I, I want it to be a fun experience. And in order to do that, I want to lay down a basic structure. And then as I'm working, I can embroider it. You know, I can do the woodwork. I can add on the paint job. You know, I can do one task at a time without needing to kind of build everything bit by bit. Now, Gene, when you write, do your characters sometimes spin off and, and want to take the story in different directions? Um, and if that's the case, do you let them? No, I really don't. Like, <laughs> I don't. You rein them back in. Well, you know, I have two kids, and some of the most frequent words I say in the house are, this is not a democracy. So, you know, I'm, I, I... I look. It depends. I try to craft the characters properly at the beginning, so that they fit into the general arc of what I'm trying to do. If I have a character who wants to do her own song and dance, it's kind of like you know we're in a tango here, but she wants to do freestyle. That is great. She can do freestyle in another book and in another story. But I, you know, we are doing the tango. Like, this is the tango kids. So um, it's not that they have no free will, because there are a lot of times where, like, my first book, Girl in Translation, in the end, something happens that is surprising um, to the main character, Kimberly, and to the reader. And Kimberly makes a choice. And that choice is so debated. And that novel of mine is taught in schools across the world. So I have a lot of letters from people, young people mostly, saying, but Jean, why didn't she make the other choice? <laughs> why did she yeah. do what she did? And my answer is, I would have made the other choice. I completely understand that they want her to have done a certain thing. Sure. I would have done that other thing, but she would not have. But that yeah. was built into the structure of the book. She is who she is. She's the product of a great deal of poverty because, you know, Girl in Translation is really based upon the poor background that I had told you about earlier, about my yeah. immigrant background. And 
coming from that, she made the only choice she could make. Yeah. And I let her do that. But that had been built into the book. I knew she would do that. Yeah. You had to be honest to that character. You couldn't just have her do what was the easy way or something. But, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. I think yeah. that's the worst thing an author can do. Had to have, and I get so turned off by a book or an author if they do that. To have a character do something that they wouldn't really do, and yeah. that the character does it because it's convenient for the author. You can never do that. That that's like a violation of your pact with the reader. But <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I build the book so knowing this. I build it the knowing that, okay, they're going to, they're this type of person and they're going to rebel here and they're going to do this and they're going to screw up there. Um, but I've built that into the book so that the book doesn't run amok. Now, when you speak to other writing groups and um, I know that you teach writing on a college level, what are some of the, um, I guess, maybe common mistakes or misconceptions that people come come to writing fiction that they bring with them to 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 the uh, to writing fiction? Well, I think the most common and most seductive mistake that you know happens in workshops and in you know kind of in editing in general is that people love to polish sentences. You know, I love to polish sentences. I mean, I love to read a piece and say, yeah, you know, you're using the word the twice there. I want to want to rethink that. You know, yeah. I mean, we love doing stuff like that. Oh, that you know, you could use a better word there. You can reshape the sentence in that way. But I, you know, as you can tell structure is very important to me, I really think that most of the time when you want to be a writer and you're trying to get published and you are not getting published and everyone and their mother is turning you down, I mean, first of all, you have to know they do that to all of us. You know, they live to reject us. But aside (laughs) from that, you know, aside from that, if you want to play the odds and actually at some point get yourself published, um, Usually, I think the problem is in the structure. I think that usually there is some flaw in the structure that is stopping your piece from moving forward. And, you know, and look, I'm calling it a flaw. You, you know, somebody might say, no, but that's the point. You know, this is art. This is what I want. And I think that's completely fine. That's, you know, it's your work. It's not my work. But I would say that most of the time when people want to break into traditional publishing and there's an issue, I think you need to fix the structure first. You need to fix the pacing, the characterization, the large-scale things before you polish the language. The language is the last thing to get fixed. Yeah, it's that boat. People paint the boat before they've actually got it on the water, I think. Exactly. 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 Now, in stories that really draw you in or novels that you really enjoy reading, what, what are some of the aspects of those stories? I know a moment ago you mentioned that it turns you off if the character starts doing things that they would never do, um, so they act out of concert with, with who they are. Are there any things that really draw you into the stories that you, that you look at and enjoy yourself? Well, I think to me, my largest connection is always with the voice and the character. So I need to feel something. And that doesn't mean that, you know, the character has to be likable. I mean, I think Uh flawed characters are incredibly interesting and phenomenal. But I do want 
you know, I want to feel for them in some way. I want to be intrigued by them. I want them to be interesting. And it helps if they're, of course, if they're in an interesting situation. But a lot of times I would just love the voice, you know, that there's something so gorgeous about um, the way someone speaks or someone is describing something. But while that will pull me in initially, that probably might not carry me through an entire novel. And so that is, um, that's just a consideration that I do think the novel has to, you know, book-length format. A short story is different. Short story is shorter. So it's, there's more like artistic license. You know, I think that when you're dealing with a book-length manuscript, I do think that it's important to have some kind of narrative arc that will bring um, the reader with you. So do you look for, with your characters, your main characters, do they end up, you know, typically being transformed in some sort of character arc uh, by facing the struggles and tragedies and difficulties that happen in the middle of the story? Is that something you kind of really look for in, in your characters? It's something I think about. I mean, yeah. I don't, you know, it's not, it, it's not like I don't want it to be formulaic, so I, you sure. know, I, I want to be careful not to be formulaic, but I do create characters that have room to grow, you know, okay. also because okay. no one wants to read about Pollyanna, you know, she's boring. So we <laughs> all want to read about people who have somewhere to go, you know, who have somewhere to move, who are flawed in some way. And I, what I like to do is I like to give a character a basic belief that is wrong in some way, like hmm. um, nobody will ever love me, you know, or um, I can, I am never going to succeed, or, you know, there are, or everyone's always going to screw me over. And I like giving them a kind of core belief like that, and it really uh-huh. shapes the character. And then a part of what happens over the course of the fictional narrative is that that core belief either changes or it doesn't. And um, it can be that a character flounders around and does not sure. manage to change that core belief and then suffers accordingly and reshapes their reality Accordingly, because they're making choices in accordance with what they believe, or they do, and they do make that um, make that last change, and that, that that's what you see. That's how you can see that they've changed at the end, because what they believe fundamentally has changed. In all the interviews that I've done on the Story Blender, I don't think I've ever had anyone mention that. I think that's such a fascinating idea to give them a core belief that is wrong and let them wrestle through that with the story. Maybe they get changed, maybe they don't change, but but um but that's a really fascinating uh, you know little insight there. Right, and I think that's actually the difference between an heroic character arc and a tragic character arc. You know, the heroic arc is the one that actually manages to make that change, and the tragic arc is the one that doesn't. Yeah, and and, um, just this idea of a core belief that we, the readers, know is wrong. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It is. Because then we can kind of be on the side of the character. Come on, I know that you, you know, can find love again, or I know that you know you can build your come out of depression or whatever the struggle might be. So, yeah, that's interesting. 
Uh, yeah, and I think, like you know, we see it in life all the time. You know, I come from a very stubborn family, and who has not had a beloved family member where you're like, oh, come on, you know, just stop being like that. And they go, <laughs> they do it again, you know, because that's what they believe. And, you know, dating the wrong women, falling for the wrong women, because that's what they believe. Um, and, you know, that's always a very interesting dynamic between, like you very insightfully said, between reader and text. When the reader is thinking, oh, come on, sweetheart, you know, change that. You can do it. And then you watch that character struggle with it. Now, something you mentioned earlier, Jean, was this idea of theme in your stories. Um, I know that your books have been translated into numerous languages. Do you think that there are, um, you know, specific themes that only relate to one culture, or do you really try to create more universal themes in your stories that really relate to people, no matter where they are in the world? Well, I, I think, you know, I, I think most themes really are universal. I yeah. think, you know, because, of course, I was born in Hong Kong. I grew up in New York City, and I now live in the Netherlands, and I've lived there for some time. So I've lived in all different places across, across the world. I can tell you, human suffering is universal. <laughs> you yeah, know? So yeah. There are, it's across all, like, poverty, rich, poor, we all, life is hard. And there are yeah. beautiful, joyous moments in life, but we all have our own struggles through this life. And so I think, um, obviously, there are cultural differences, and that is a large part of what I'm interested in writing about and what I, you know, what I focus on. But I do think, my bottom point is always, the basic point is that underneath all of our miscommunication and seeming like that somebody is so other and so different and maybe so aggressive or so unfriendly to us, actually we're all the same underneath, you yeah. know. And I, I do believe in the universality of the human experience. Yeah, I think I, I do too. And, and it's really, um, I think that all stories that matter, all stories that stand the test of time, whatever that test would be, are stories that ask big questions and that relate to those those issues of human nature that you just mentioned, and I like how you put it, where there are there are moments, joyful moments, I think you said, but there is also, you know, life is struggle and difficulty as well. And and in um, stories that can capture that paradox of pain and also glory, of grief and wonder, those are the stories that really resonate the most, I think. Oh, that's really beautiful. I would completely agree with that. So... Um, tell us a little about the newest book that you that that just came out. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more about it. I've been looking at it's getting stellar reviews and lots of buzz, but searching for Sylvie Lee, what what's going on with this story? Well, you know, you are an amazing interviewer because this is exactly the right moment to ask me this because we're talking about, yeah, you are, because we're just talking about cultural differences and universality. And, you know, I was thinking about that when I was creating this book. And I thought, you know, because my, my parents spoke only Chinese. They never learned English. And I am lucky enough to be by, you know, I, I can speak Chinese and I can speak English. So I could 
could still communicate with them in their own language. But later generations of my family can't. You know, they can maybe kind of understand Chinese, but they're not fully fluent. And that uh-huh. happens a lot in families where the later generations are actually speaking a different language from the first generation. And I thought, how interesting would that be to capture that in a book, to make people realize that actually we see each other through a curtain of language. So what I mean is, for example, my book is about, um, it's about two sisters and one disappears and the other one has to figure out what happened to her. And when they are, I'll give you a full description in a little bit, but just about the language of it. When you read one chapter and that's, you know, written in um, English and the narrator is actually in English, thinking in English, you see the mother and the mother is Chinese and she seems very nice but very limited and can only say things like, sorry, so sorry. But then the next chapter opens in the mother's voice in Chinese. So it's written in English, but it's thought in Chinese. And because of that, yeah, you realize she's a completely poetic, thoughtful, deep person that is invisible across the language if you don't speak Chinese. So Searching for Sylvie Lee is a suspenseful family drama, and it's about these long buried secrets that tie together three women. It's a mother and her two daughters. And it's about what happens to this Chinese immigrant family when the gifted dazzling eldest daughter disappears on a trip to the Netherlands and the younger timid shy daughter has to pull herself together and follow in the tracks of her beloved older sister to try to figure out what happened to her and like I said earlier the story is told by each of the three women the mother and the two daughters in their own voices and in their own languages so each woman is thinking in English Chinese and Dutch and is confined by her culture even though of course the whole book is written in English. So it's an exploration of romantic love, the love between mothers and daughters, and it's about how the limits of culture and language can stop us from truly knowing the people that we love the most in the world. It sounds like that would have been a very challenging book to write. So true. Oh, my God. Thinking, um, in, you know, in different languages and then writing it all in English, that's so fascinating. Right, and, you know, and th- th- I have to say this book was really a test of the skills that we have discussed in this um, interview because, you know, there are a couple of issues. One is the different languages, so I had to think in a different language while writing the person in that language. And then what happens in the book is that, you know, the older sister, the, who, the dazzling sister who disappears is Sylvie Lee. And um, the narrators, you know, Amy, the book opens, and Amy figures out that Sylvie is missing. And she's trying to find out what happened to Sylvie. And then Sylvie starts to speak. But Sylvie's story is backdated a month. Uh-huh. So we are watching Sylvie fly to the Netherlands before her disappearance. So as Amy is finding clues as to what the heck happened to Sylvie, we are seeing Sylvie go through um, her experience that led to her disappearance. And it was a very complex act to figure out who knew what at which time. And not for the reader. Yeah. So that in the end, actually, when you finish the book, the only 
person who knows the entire story is the reader. You know, Sylvie only knows her part. Amy only knows her part. Ma only knows her part. But we know everything. I like it. That sounds fascinating. So we want, our, we want our listeners to go out and buy a copy. Now, where's the best place for people to look for your book? Um, go online or um, do you encourage them to go to local bookstores? Oh, well, you know, I mean, I am, of course, a huge fan of the indie bookstores. They are amazing people that we need to support whenever we can. So if there is a great bookstore near you, pick it up there. But, you know, Amazon is great, too. Online, sure. I think whatever floats your boat. You know, and people yeah. sometimes are like, oh, is it okay if I read on my e-reader? I'm like, totally. It's great. <laughs> I read on my e-reader all the time. You know, so um, I think whatever works best for you. And audiobooks, I have some amazing audiobook narrators um, working on this, you know, who have made an audiobook. They were yeah. phenomenal. So, you know, any format is great. Fantastic. Yeah, that's great. So Searching for Sylvie Lee is the name of the book, and you can buy it wherever books are sold or get an audiobook or a Kindle version or, or ebook version or Nook or whatever it is. So um, where's the best place for people? Let's say that they want to catch you at a book signing or maybe presentation. Where would we look online to find information about appearances that you might be making? Right. Um, you know, the central place for all information about me is my website, and that's just my name. So it's, you know, jeanquok.com. Gene, uh, J-E-A-N, K-W-O-K, and then .com. And everything is linked there. I am, of course, on social media. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. So you can always, you know, reach out there. I'm, I'm active and all that. And you can always shoot me a message um, via my website as well. That's fantastic. So... Everyone, thanks for tuning in and listening today. And, Gene, thanks so much for your insights. I really enjoyed the conversation. I so enjoyed being here. Thank you. And um, so for more information about other guests and other broadcasts, you can click to thestoryblender.com. For my books, you can click to stephenjames.net. And thanks to our host, Suspense Radio. Don't forget to subscribe to all of their great broadcasts. And friends, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.